And so we're in Matthew chapter 10. If you've been with us, we've been walking through uh, the book of Matthew for some time now. And we started last week or a couple of weeks ago in this second uh, teaching pillar that Matthew has written around. And this is the sending of the 12. And so uh, we started the first week. We talked about the introduced you to the disciples who were kind of this group of most likely to screw it up. And yet Jesus raised them up, sent them out. And then last week, we, we began to introduce you to to the mission. We talked about the person of peace, if you remember that, and what to do when you come into a village. And then now we're going to get into, uh, Jesus is going to continue this conversation. And um, I, I think back to when um, uh, we moved back here. We lived in North Carolina, and then in 2005, my wife, Jen, and I, and our, our oldest daughter, Kendall, uh, moved to Canada. And we moved just outside of Toronto and planted a church there. Didn't know a soul. Just said, let's go move to a city we've never been to and start a church. Like, sounds like a great idea. And so we did that in 2005. And then after about six years there, uh, we loved being there, but we began to begin to wrestle with, um, is God done with us here? Has, have we accomplished what he brought us here to accomplish? And so for two years, we kind of wrestled with that. And uh, we're going to do a series in a few weeks called uh, Just Say Yes. And one of the things we're going to deal with is a lot of the questions a lot of us have is like, how do we know when God's speaking? How do we know what he's saying? And so we're going to talk through that a little bit. But uh, over the course of two years, trying to figure out what is he saying and how do you discern his, his voice? And so we walked through that. And, and 2013 was when we just sensed that God was saying, I'm releasing you from here and I'm going to call you to something else. And in the middle of that, we came down here to uh, visit. We were headed to Florida and we stopped in Raleigh to visit some friends and uh, to see our pastor, uh, Jimmy, and his wife, Beverly. And so uh, we spent an evening with them, and we did what we always did when we got together. We ate way too much food and told stories. Uh, Jimmy and I, we, every time we're together, we tell the exact same stories every single time we're together. And then we sat by a fire, and I knew at some point, because Jimmy had walked through all of this with me, and I knew at some point he was going to pitch the idea of us moving back to the Raleigh area to start a church. So I wasn't surprised when he brought it up. And, and, and so we talked about it, and, and he shared with me uh, and spoke to me about all of the benefits. He, he spoke my language. He knew the things I cared about. And so he talked about the opportunity of coming here and having a greater impact for the kingdom. And if you know me, like the, the way I operate is, how can I make the greatest impact for the kingdom in the shortest amount of time? That's what I want to give my life doing. That's what I want to be about. So we talked about kingdom impact. We talked about reaching the triangle. We talked about planting out of journey. As I said before, when we moved to Canada to start a church, it was just our family, the three of us at that time. And then the first Sunday we met, there were six people total. We made up 50% of the people that were there that Sunday. So that, like that, I, I know what that struggle is like. So we talked about planting out a journey where we would have several families potentially come with us. And I'm looking around the room, and I see a lot of faces of people that you have been with us for every one of those, every one of those years. You said yes when there was nothing to say yes to. I remember in the early days before we launched, one of the questions was, we were going to meet, and I said, just off the cuff, I don't know, for all I care, we'll meet in a bowling alley. I did not know that that was prophetic, but that's where we started, was in a bowling alley, and you were, you were there for that. So we talked about that, like what it would be like to plant with, with multiple families, um, what, it'd be like to, what it would be like to co-labor together in an area. Talked about nice weather. Um, I don't know what's been going on lately, uh, but we're certainly not getting that. If I wanted to live in Seattle, I would live in Seattle. Uh, we talked about golf, being able to play more golf than I had been, a been able to play when we were in Canada. And we talked about all of the benefits. And 
And now it's, it's not like Jimmy left out the, the negatives. Like I knew what some of the negatives were. We touched on them briefly, but they were just sort of in passing. You led with and focused on the benefits. We didn't talk about the things like how difficult it was going to be to leave a church that we planted, uh, to move away from some of the, the best relationships we'd ever had. Still to this day, some of our closest friends live in Canada. To move to an area where we were, in essence, starting over. Uh, the challenge it would be for our kids. It's not like we didn't address those, but those were just kind of, those are challenges you deal with along the way. You focus on the benefits. Like if someone were to show up at your house, uh, right now it seems like the most common door-to-door -door people right now are roofers, like trying to convince me I need a new roof. And so they knock on the door and they're like, hey, can I climb up there and inspect your roof? If they say that, what they mean is, can I rip some shingles off and take a couple of pictures and get you to buy this and get you to use our company? Um, but, you know, there's a lot, a lot of roofers in the, in the community, and some of them come here, so I'm totally joking, um, sort of. But, um, but you know, the, well, could you imagine if they showed up at your house and their pitch was, man, let me tell you about all the other roofers in the community that are better than we are. Like, here, here's a list of all of the poor reviews we've gotten. Here's a list of our limitations and flaws. But, hey, why don't you do, do business with us anyway? Right? You, you don't lead with that. You don't lead with the negatives. You lead with the positive. These are the benefits. Like These are the reasons why you would want to use our company. And so I find it interesting when we get to this section of Matthew chapter 10, the way Jesus operated is Jesus always led with the challenges. He always led with the negatives. He always led with the reality that following him was not going to be easy. From the very beginning, he led with the challenges. From the very beginning, he said to these guys and to us, this mission is important, but this mission is not going to be easy. Following me is going to cost you something. I think in our culture today, we've embraced a false belief of following Jesus that we either heard or we just made up ourselves, but that follow Jesus and all your problems will go away. Follow Jesus and everything will get easier. Follow Jesus and we all just kind of live happily ever after. And that sounds good. That, that, that's, that's appealing to us. I don't know that I've, I've ever led with someone, hey, follow Jesus and you're going to suffer. Like in, in inviting people to join us into this relationship, into community, into pursuing Jesus, we're talking about all of the benefits. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus led with the cost. He consistently said, count the cost. It's almost as if the crowd would, would grow around him and he'd be like, man, there are too many people here. It's time to thin the herd. And so he would teach difficult things. He would say, hey, if you want to follow me, you've got to deny self. You can't have your own way and follow me. We're, we're not merging. I'm taking over. Who's still with me? And a bunch of people would leave. Or he would say things like, follow me, but it might cost you your family. All right, Jesus, like, good talk. Love the miracles, but I'm out. Hey, follow me, but it may cost you your life. Who's still with me? And it seems like every time Jesus would lay one of those speeches down, the crowd would thin, and oftentimes there'd just be the 12 left, going, we, we got nowhere else to go. Like, yes, we're with you. But he always led with the cost, that it was going to be difficult, that it was going to be challenging, that this wasn't going to be easy. And in Matthew chapter 10, Verse 16, as we continue walking through this chapter, you see it. He says, look, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. So be as shrewd as snakes and as harmless as doves. But beware, for you'll be handed over to the courts and be flogged with whips in the synagogues. Doesn't that sound like fun? 
You'll stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell the rulers and other unbelievers about me. He says, look, this is that, that moment like the teacher when she like turns off the light to get everybody's attention or somebody snaps their fingers or uh, I think one of my things is I say, listen, like listen. And Jesus says, like, look, pay, pay attention. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Now, if you know anything about sheep and wolves, what he's saying is it's not going to end well. In fact, if you want to know what, it ha what happens when sheep and wolves intermingle, just Google pack of wolves and sheep, and I'm certain there'll be a lot of videos of wolves tearing sheep to shreds. Like, that, that's what they do. Sheep in and of themselves aren't able to protect themselves. They rely on the herd. They rely on the shepherd to take care of them. And he says to these guys, he says, understand this. Understand what you're walking into. I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. This is not going to, to go well in this life. He says, so be shrewd as serpents. Shrewd means to, to have sharp judgment. He says, be shrewd as serpents. That means that we're able to assess the situation and make wise decisions in spite of a difficult situation. I think for us today, the, the challenge there is, and, I, and I'm not minimizing prayer. We absolutely should pray about everything. We're told to do that. But I think for a lot of us, we oftentimes pray and then do nothing. So, so we, we pray about something when when oftentimes the answer's right in front of us, it's obvious, and we'll ask God to fix it, and God's going, I've given you everything you need, now it's time for you to just step out and do it. Be, be wise, be shrewd, have sharp judgment. And he says, but be harmless as doves. That means that in the decisions we make that we're not looking to intentionally hurt people or disregard them along the way. He goes on in verse 17, he says, beware. He said, hey, sheep among wolves, you guys know how that's gonna go. Beware, you're going to be handed over to the courts. You're going to be flogged with whips in the synagogues. He says the government and society, even the religious society, which is where the synagogue was, is going to persecute you. You know, Christianity has always been linked with persecution. Since the day Jesus showed up, his followers have had to pay a price for aligning themselves with him. Persecution is aggressive hostility. It's a systemic mistreatment of someone or a group of people simply because of their faith. And the early church experienced great persecution, maybe more extreme persecution than any generation or any society has ever experienced it. For the first 300 years, Christianity was seen as a hostile enemy that was to be destroyed. In fact, it wasn't until 325 when Constantine nationalized Christianity, that persecution began to slow down. But they suffered extreme persecution. For those early followers, Christianity was always illegal. They were forced to meet underground in homes under the cover of darkness. They were imprisoned. They were beaten, impaled on spears, crucified, beheaded, cut in half, clubbed to death. If you read some of the, the ancient uh, ancient descriptions of what took place. A lot of what happened was just simply done for sport and general amusement as they would burn followers of Jesus at the stake, specifically at night to illuminate the darkness. Like having a gathering of people and you need a nightlight, well, here, let's find some followers of Jesus, let's string them up and let's burn them and we'll let their, their burning carcasses ignite and light up the night. 
There's stories of, of Christians where they would take, they would take uh, animal hides and put them on them and allow dogs to tear them to shreds. Like this is what happened. This is the, the cost. Jesus said following me isn't gonna be easy. He says this is what you're up against. You may be separated from your family. You may be imprisoned. You may be beaten. You may even die because you're following me. And we may not experience that today in our culture, but in parts of the world that happens still today. Countries like North Korea, Afghanistan, Vietnam, China, just to name a few. People suffer greatly simply for following Jesus. They're beaten, they're imprisoned, they're separated from their families. And in our world today, between 100,000 and 160,000 people die for following Jesus worldwide every year. Over 100,000 people in our world this year will die simply because they're following Jesus. Now, again, we don't experience that. We experience some levels of persecution. I would, I would categorize our persecution in our culture today as probably no more than inconvenient at best. I mean, today, we, we think we're, we're under great persecution because your boss told you you couldn't keep your Bible out on your desk at work. There are people who are imprisoned for years who are being beheaded in this world today because of their faith, but hey, I'm being persecuted because I can't open the staff meeting in prayer. Like we're experiencing a very mild, inconvenient level of persecution, but Jesus said, regardless, you're going to experience suffering. That's, that's a part of following me, and he leads with that. It's not like, hey, here are all the benefits. Oh, and by the way, here's the fine print of the challenges you might experience. He leads with the challenges. He goes on in verse 19. He says, when you are arrested, don't worry about how to respond or what to say. God will give you the right words at the right time. For it is not you who will be speaking. It will be the spirit of your father speaking through you. So it says when you're arrested, don't worry. Now, usually don't worry means some good news. Like when you're arrested, don't worry. Uh, they won't keep you there. Don't worry. God will deliver you. Don't worry. You'll be, you'll be free. Don't worry. You won't suffer. But that's not what it says, is it? It says, when you're arrested, don't worry about how to respond or what to say. God will give you the words to speak. You know, Jesus never promised you and I deliverance. He just promised us his presence. That regardless of what we may be experiencing, regardless of what we may be walking through, that he is going to be there and he is going to be present and we won't walk through it alone. The Holy Spirit is given to us to lead us, to guide us, to direct us. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit living in you right now. The Spirit of Jesus is living in you. And the Spirit is moving and leading and guiding and at times will give us the words to say. Even in life, there are moments where we're meeting with someone and we say something and we leave and we think, man, that was so profound. I can't believe I said that. And it's like, that wasn't you. The Holy Spirit speaking through you, giving you the words. As we surrender control of our lives to the Spirit, he's going to give us the words to say when we find ourselves in situations where, 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 our God, where the gospel is being pressed up against, where it's being threatened. He goes on in verse 21 and says, A brother will betray his brother to death. A father will betray his own child. And children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. And all nations will hate you because you're my followers. 
but everyone who endures to the end will be saved. When you're persecuted in one town, flee to the next. I tell you the truth, the Son of Man will return before you have reached all the towns of Israel. Back in verse 21, a brother will betray brother to death. A father will betray his own child. Children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. This is not the rah-rah speech that you would be fired up about signing up for. Jesus is laying it all out there. I mean, could you imagine your favorite team and you get a camera shot into the locker room and it's the coach giving the speech and he's like, all right, boys, they're bigger than we are, they're stronger than we are, they're faster than we are, I've put $500 on them winning the game, but let's go out there and get it done. Like, this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, he's saying guys, you're gonna suffer. Like, brothers are going to betray, brothers' family is going to betray each other. They're going to turn on each other simply because you are following me. In parts of the world today, this is happening. There are stories. This is a story I read recently. We've got a picture of this, this girl here. Her name is Rabba. She's in a country in Asia, became a strong follower of Jesus. She was engaged to a Muslim he became angry, pressured her to renounce Christ. She refused. This went on for some time. Eventually, he, one day he said to her, hey, take the train and meet me in this village, which is where his family was. He said, I want to introduce you to my family. So she's excited. Like, this is a significant step in the relationship to meet his family. And so she's going to meet his family. And when she arrives, he met her, took her out in the woods, beat her to death, and then dumped her body on some train tracks, simply because she was a Christ follower and wouldn't renounce her faith in Jesus. Jesus said it's going to cost you something. Jesus said there's a sacrifice, there's a price to be paid. This man was arrested and released after only three or four weeks because it was clear that he was guilty, but it was also clear in that culture that she deserved it because she became a Christ follower. Like this is happening in our world. Then in some cultures, they believe that you shamed the family and the, and the religion. And so because of that, families are known to turn their loved ones over to the religious police, to physically abuse them, and even to disown them simply for following Jesus. And Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, the cost may be great. But he says in verse 22, all nations are going to hate you because you're my followers, but everyone who endures to the end will be saved. What's he, what's he talking about? So saved is not a reference to eternal salvation. If it was, we'd be right back to the whole, like, good works can get you to heaven. It's not what he's talking about. The word for end is the, the finish line in a race, and the word for saved is, it means the preservation of your reward. So think about it this way. In, in Scripture, the Christian life is often the analogy that's often used is that we're running a race. There's, there's a prize that's waiting for us. There's a reward at the finish line. But you got to get to the finish line in order to get the prize. Uh, I've run several races. In fact, some of my greatest and most painful accomplishments have been races. The, the most significant uh, to me is a marathon I ran back in 2019. And... Um, uh, when, you, when you sign up for the race, you get a bunch of swag. You get like your bib, you get a shirt. 
They give you nipple or uh, band-aids in case your nipples bleed, uh, and they will after 26 miles. Um, and so they give you all of this stuff. You get this bag. So simply for signing up, you get that. So, so like, let's just use that. that let's, let's just say that's heaven. If you said yes to following Jesus, your eternal destiny is sealed. That's not what this is talking about. So heaven is guaranteed. You say yes to Jesus, heaven's the swag bag. You get the swag bag. But when you run a, a race, specifically a, a marathon, there's also a medal. You don't get the medal until you cross the finish line. Everybody who signs up gets this, but only those who finish the race get the medal. So you could quit after three miles. You could quit after six miles, which I thought about, after 10 miles, which I thought about, after 16 miles, which I was trying to fake a heart attack or fall into the river, uh, or even after 20 miles. But if you don't finish the race, you don't get the medal. So in the context of eternity, our eternal destiny is sealed, but Scripture teaches that there are crowns that are waiting for us. There are rewards that are waiting for us in addition to, being, in, in addition to experiencing all of the glories of heaven. That, that there are things that, that we accomplish in this life that will have eternal value. That this reward is a reward that, that we will be given simply for enduring persecution and enduring to the end. And so Jesus says there's a reward, there's a promise that yes, there's gonna be suffering in this life. That in some cultures, in some parts of the world, and maybe eventually here, there could be great suffering. But he says, hang in there, endure. There's a reward for you that's eternal. In the Bible, when it talks about crowns and it talks about rewards, these are all the things that, that we will cast at Jesus' feet in an act of worship to him. Someone in the first service uh, said, I don't get it. I, I don't get to keep all that stuff. <laughs> like the gold, that should be for me. But when we get to heaven, I think we'll see it differently. But that's stuff that we get to, to cast at Jesus' feet in an, act of, in an act of worship. And he says, everyone who endures to the end will be saved. Their, their reward will be preserved. And he goes on and he says, when, verse 23, uh, when you are persecuted in one town, flee to the next. He says, stay on the move. In response to persecution, keep advancing the mission forward. Notice he doesn't say fight it. In our culture today, we sense that we may be losing our religious freedom. And I, and I, I said this a few weeks ago, I care about it a lot. I'm, I'm able to get a paycheck because we're able to do this. If we stop doing this, I'm going to have to see how well my skills in life translate into some other field. Like, I understand the tension. But he doesn't say fight it. He doesn't say run from it. He doesn't say hide it. He says endure, and then he says keep the mission moving forward. Go to the next town. In the early church, you see that persecution was able to serve God's purpose by scattering the early church. Without it, they would have just stayed in Jerusalem. If you remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, says to his followers, he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the, and to the ends of the earth. When we get to Acts chapter, so that's Acts 1, 8. Acts 2, Peter preaches this sermon. 3,000 people say yes to following Jesus. Things in Jerusalem are rocking. Every church planter would love to experience that. Like when we started Generation, if we'd had 3,000 people say yes to Jesus the first week, I would have been able to retire. Like we're done. But then it also says that from that point forward, daily, more pe God was adding more people to the church, those who were saying yes to Jesus. So things in Jerusalem were rocking and they're thinking, man, we don't have to go anywhere. Like we'll just keep, we'll just keep doing ministry here. 
But Jesus said you, you're to go outside of Jerusalem. So when we get to Acts 8, 1, it says the church was basically hanging out in Jerusalem. And it says a great wave of persecution arose, and it says that that persecution scattered the followers to Judea and to Samaria, and eventually to the ends of the earth. But in Acts 1.8, he said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. They were hanging in Jerusalem. God used that wave of persecution to scatter them, to begin to move them where Jesus had told them that they were supposed to go. And so they needed maybe a little bit of, of, uh, of persuasion to move forward. But eventually, it extended outside of Jerusalem. And today we're here because the message of the gospel was taken to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus in verse 24 and 25 says, students are not greater than their teacher. Slaves are not greater than their master. Students are to be like their teacher and slaves are to be like their master. And since I, the master of the household, have been called the prince of demons, the members of my household will be called by even worse names. He's giving them a, a basic principle of rank and authority. When a person falls under the authority of a superior, you can never possess more privilege or authority. Just think about it in terms of your job. You've got a boss, and I know how, how it goes. You can do your boss's job way better than he can, right? Like you, 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 know, you, you know the industry better, you know how to manage people better. Every decision he makes, you do differently and you do better. And it's so much easier to see how to do his job when you're not sitting in that seat. But you got a boss, and you're here, and you know you're more qualified than he is, but as long as that, that pecking order is set, as long as that totem pole exists, you're never going to be able to have more influence than he does. You're never going to be able to be more superior than he is. If you want to, you've got to leave. You've got to get a promotion to jump him, or you've got to go somewhere else. Jesus is saying, as long as the master and the teacher relate, or the teacher and the student relationship is intact, the student can never surpass the teacher. The best he can hope for is to become like the teacher, which is what disciples do, right? We say that a disciple is someone who is following Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and helping others do the same. Jesus is telling them that your goal to simply be, should simply be to become like him. Ephesians 5.2, we're told to follow the example of Christ. So if Jesus is the master, if Jesus is the teacher, our goal should simply, to be, should simply be to become like him and to live the life he's living. And so he puts it out there and says, if you live the way I did, you're going to experience what I experienced. If they hated me and you're like me, they're going to hate you. If they opposed me, why would you expect something else? And one of the challenges, challenges we have is, we want to live the life Jesus lived, but we don't want to suffer the way Jesus suffered. I want, to, I want to be like Jesus as much as I possibly can without being inconvenienced. Like, like, like Jesus, I'm all in on following you unless it costs something, which is exactly what was happening in the crowds around Jesus as he's teaching. We're all in on the miracles. Man, you're going to raise the dead? Yes, yeah, sign me up to be a part of that. You're going to feed thousands of people? With just a, a boy's lunch, I want to see that one. Heal leprosy, have, have blind people see. Yes, I want to see all of that. I want to experience all of that. Oh, but it's going to cost me something? I'm good. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be like me, you have to expect 
to be treated the way I was treated. And for you and I today, following Jesus has already had to cost us something. Right now, it may not cost us our life, but it's costing us something. In fact, if, you, if following Jesus hasn't cost you anything to this point, I would tell you you're probably not following Jesus. It's going to cost us today things like our comfort, our security. It's going to cost us financially. Simply, if you follow the, the biblical teaching of tithing, if you make the same amount of money as somebody else and you follow the biblical principle of tithing, you're, you're already 10% less than what they have. There's a sacrifice that's involved that comes with following him. It's going to cost us our plans and our desires. It may cost us our reputation. One day it may cost you or me my job. It may cost us our, our safety, our health. One day it may even cost us our lives. And as our culture moves further and further away from God, as our society and government become less and less favorable to the church, we need to be aware of and have sharp judgment to know how to respond. And we can take some level of comfort in knowing that Jesus promised us it was going to happen. And so how do, we, how do we move? How do we function? How do we, how do we operate? Well, I think there are two things you see in here that can help us significantly. Number one is regardless of what following Jesus is going to cost you, number one is you've got to, have, you've got to focus your attention on Jesus. In Hebrews 12, it talks about you know, running this race in life. And then how do we do that? Verse 2, it says we do that by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarded the shame, now he is seated in the place of honor besides God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. Since we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, that Jesus is our focus. And, and listen, in life, whatever you focus on becomes your source. Whatever you focus on is, is what fuels you. Think of some of the best athletes of all time. They were known to just have laser focus. Think of Tom Brady, whether you, whether you like him or not, that guy is incredibly focused. You look at who he was when he came out of college, you look at who he is now, he's in better shape than he was 20 years ago. The guy is completely zoned in and laser focused on winning. Tiger Woods, who I think is the, the greatest golfer to ever live, Tiger Woods was focused. In fact, when he started playing, when, when he came onto the scene, he had this mentality that no one else had ever had. His focus was on the four major tournaments every year, and his schedule, his calendar, everything was, was built around that. He was laser-focused on what he wanted to accomplish. Michael Jordan was another one, laser-focused on beating the Pistons, on winning the championship, on winning another one. And it was their focus that fueled them. And what you and I focus on will be our source. It's what fuels us. And what you and I focus on will also determine what we say yes and no to. If you're having a hard time saying yes to Jesus, I'm just going to tell you it's because your focus is not on Jesus. It's really hard to say no to Jesus when your life is consumed with surrendering to him. What you focus on will determine what you say yes and what you say no to. 
If we focus on temporal things, material wealth, bigger houses, faster cars, relationships, religious freedom, then that's what's going to fuel us. That's where we're going to find our strength. But when Jesus is our focus, Jesus will be our strength, our source. He's where we will find our purpose and our identity. And you and I get to choose what we focus on. Are we going to focus on things that are here, that are temporal, here today, gone tomorrow? Or are we going to do the second thing, and that is live with an eternal perspective? It's, it's clear when you read this passage, Jesus' highest priority is not your personal safety, is not freedom for you and I from suffering in this life, because this life is only a small part of who we are. The Bible says we're here today, we're gone tomorrow. Life is a vapor. It's a flash in the pan. Now, now for me, the 43 years I've been alive feels like a, a long time. But in the grand scheme of eternity, it's nothing. It's insignificant. And so living with an eternal perspective is when you and I live our life today as if what we do today matters not only here, but also matters there, matters in eternity. And the problem for many of us, we live as if today is all that matters, that this season of life is the only thing that's important. And we got to live with an, e an eternal perspective. The disciples and the early church followers, they got that. They lived with their eyes on Jesus and their perspective shaped by eternity. Paul said, I count all my accomplishments as garbage compared to the infinite value of knowing him. Romans 8, 18 and 19, he said, Paul said, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. Andrew, one of the disciples who was crucified for following Jesus, they're walking him out to the cross that they're going to hang him on. And when the cross comes into sight, it says he looked at the cross and said this. He said, oh, cross most welcome and oft looked for. With a willing mind, joyfully and desirously, I come to thee. Being the scholar of him who did hang on thee, because I have always been thy lover and have longed to embrace thee. How in the world do you say that? I, like suffering, I'm not looking to suffer. Like one day, may I have to give my life because I'm a follower of Jesus? Maybe, but I'm not looking for that to be today. But these guys lived with such a perspective shaped by by eternity. That Andrew, as he's hanging on the cross, it says that for three days he hung there. And as people were walking by, he continued to talk about Jesus and tell them about Jesus. With his dying breath, he was telling people the good news of the message of the gospel. They lived with an eternal perspective. For you and I today, we may not experience persecution like they did, but there are certainly signs that we may be moving in that direction. So honestly, in our lifetime, it's, it's likely to change. We're likely going to see some of our freedom stripped from us. But we know that Jesus promised it would happen. And in John 16, 33, he said that in the world, you'll have tribulation, you'll have trouble. But that we can take heart because he said, I've overcome the world. You know, the church, 
has always been been at its strongest when persecution has been at its greatest. And the church has always been at its weakest when safety and comfort have been at its greatest. If you think about what we're living and walking through today, like if you were to describe the church today, we're apathetic, we're indifferent, we're frustrated, we're fearful, we're divided. Like safety and comfort are at its greatest in the church is maybe at its least effective. The greatest advancements of the gospel have always happened during the most difficult times. Think about the early church. There are a few hundred followers. And then by 100 AD, there were about 25,000 followers. By 300 AD, it grew from 25,000 followers, 25,000 followers, to over 20 million followers in 200 years under extreme persecution. Or even more recent in the 1900s, the church in China. When the missionaries were kicked out in the 1900s, there were two to three million Christians. Several decades later, they brought the the missionaries who were allowed to go back in, and they thought when they went back in, they thought what they were going to see was that Christianity had almost completely disappeared. Do you know what they found when they walked back in? The church in China had grown from two to three million followers to between 60 to 80 million followers when, when following Jesus was illegal. The greatest moments of the church, the greatest advancements of the gospel have been when persecution's been at its greatest. And so I'm not here this morning telling you I'm praying for persecution I'm not here this morning telling you I'm praying that we would lose religious freedom. I'm just telling you that stuff is is happening, is going to continue to happen. And we got two choices. We can fight it, or we can give our lives to fight to advance the gospel. Because that's what Jesus has told us to do. And listen, I'm going to tell you that I believe with all of my heart that our best days as a church in North America, are ahead of us. Our best days have not happened yet. That regardless of what we may lose, we're going to see gains for the kingdom. Because Jesus promised it would happen. In Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus said, I will build my church. I'm not going to stop it. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He says, I won't stop it, and Satan can't stop it. No matter how much he would like to, no matter how difficult it becomes, no matter how much persecution we experience, it will not stop the advancement of the gospel because Jesus has promised us that the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. The only question for us is are we gonna accept the responsibility that we have as ambassadors to be the light bring the gospel to people who are far from God. Would you stand with me? Father, we we come before you. We are ambassadors. We are servants. We're going to take the gospel to the lives of people who are far from you. That persecution is not going to stop us. 
Suffering in this life is not going to stop us. We have hope because you're with us. And we're going to follow you. We trust you. And we thank you for inviting us into your mission.